Innovation on the Edge with Microsoft Edge is a weekly podcast that explores the cutting edge of internet innovation and pop culture trends. Each week, we'll dig into how people are currently using the web to innovate, notable ways in which it's evolving, what its future might look like, and how we can create the future together. Welcome curious creators, disruptors, and innovators to Innovation on the Edge. As an adult, there's lots of stuff we wish we would have learned in grade school, like managing your finances, how to jump a car, moisturizing in your 30s and retinol is a must, and how to critically think about the headlines you see every day. Because the truth is, fake news is more prevalent than ever. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the topic of fake news and how to decipher fact versus fiction. I'm Chelsea Briggs, and joining me today is lie detecting expert Juliana von Reppert Bismarck. Juliana is the creator of Lie Detectors, an award winning news literacy campaign and nonprofit that sends working journalists into classrooms in Europe to teach children about fake news and online disinformation and how to maneuver it. To create Lie Detectors, Juliana put aside an award winning journalism career of 20 years during which she wrote for The Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Newsweek, and so on. All right, let's dive in. Welcome, Juliana. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Chelsea. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start with your company, Lie Detectors, which you started in 2017. First, tell us, what is it and what do you guys do? Um, yeah, well, thanks for that question. And, and thank you for the invitation and also for the attention that you're paying um, to this important issue of disinformation. So um, it's really great to be speaking to you and your listeners. And um, as you know, Lie Detectors is an independent and very luckily award-winning media literacy um, organization that works with professional journalists across Europe to tackle disinformation and the corrosive effect that disinformation has on democracy. Um, and we do that by training and sending journalists, working journalists, um, into classrooms these days via video conferencing um, because of the pandemic to speak with young people aged 10 to 15 and to their teachers about how to sort fact from fiction online and how um, to understand the gray shades um, that might lie between those two poles, um, but also to understand how professional journalism works and by um, advocating at international level for smart policies to counter disinformation. Um, One important thing is we are non-political, we take no money from political entities or commercial entities, and we're currently working with 250, we've just crossed the 250 mark, 250 journalists in four countries. Um, We're also advising quite a number of of governments and government institutions on on anti-radicalization and ways of tackling disinfo. Wow, I mean, what you're doing is incredible. And I've, it's it's so crazy because it is such an important topic and teaching it to young kids is, I mean, brilliant. But I've never heard of anything like this before. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show. But I think the most interesting thing is, is that you were actually a journalist for 20 years before starting Lie Detectors. So I want to know, like, at what moment did you realize disinformation in our world was a real problem and you just needed to personally do something about it? Um, yeah, so that's right. You know, um, it was back in 2016, at the end of 2016, and I was sort of minding my own business, really happy being a journalist. You know, I was researching at the time a documentary um, about um, political trends in Europe and European society, polarization, and several things really happened in very short succession. Um, I think the most important one was when um, 
I came across a group of school children in a really well-to-do part of Germany. You've got to imagine like a very nice um, kind of small city with a beautiful library and tons of academics um, mm. from around the world doing research at this library. Far away from being able to vote, um, far even further away from the United States, um, and where they had very, very strong opinions, um, there was a lot of like actual stuff that was pure QAnon, early QAnon stuff. Um, and these 13-year-old kids were buying it. Um, and when I asked them as a good journalist, you know, where are you getting this stuff from? They said, oh, our source is Instagram. No and, way. You know, I was horrified. And I oh said, that's not, a, that's not a source. That is a photo app. Um, and it kind of triggered all sorts of things. You know, it made me think about people are not really aware of um, what journalism is, how to distinguish journalism from, you know, a troll post. Um, uh, kids are receiving disinformation at a much younger age than, mm. you know, than I ever thought when I first started out. And very often teachers and parents can be entirely unaware um, that this is happening. And if they are not unaware, if they are aware, they still often fear to broach this topic and don't quite know how to tackle it. So what I did when I found this out was, you know, I thought, well, I've got some time on my hands. Um, so I looked around for an initiative that would allow me to work with kids in classrooms and talk to them about how good journalism works, what the pitfalls are of journalism, you know, how to tell fact from fiction. And then when I didn't find an initiative like that, I just thought, oh, well, I'll see whether I can start one myself. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's where it all started. We're really lucky right from the get-go to get a really very um, generous funder, which is um, the Wiz Foundation, which is based in the US, um, oh, wow. who kind of got on board and, um, and helped us with our test phase and, you know, have helped us ever since. Well, and that's it's crazy that you say, you know, you heard kids talking about it and, and from seeing things on Instagram. But the, the 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 thing is, is that it's adults, too, that are seeing these things on Instagram and believing them. And I, I just I don't know if you have a percentage, but I was curious in our world today. What would you say is the percentage of people who can or can't distinguish between fact and fake news? That's such a good question. And it's actually so difficult to tell, yeah. you know, because that really depends on what people think. And we don't know. But what we do know is that the OECD um, came out with a report very recently, which said, and I have to check the actual figure, but I'm pretty sure they said that 80% of children aged 10 to 14 are unable to tell the difference between a fact and an opinion. If you show them a fact and you show them a, um, an opinion, they will not be able to distinguish between the two. Um, and that's a pretty um, shocking thing. Yeah. You know? So uh, that's a very, very good indicator. And we're lucky that people are, you know, are, are working on, on those kind of metrics. Wow. So, okay. So when it comes to what you're teaching kids, what would you mm -hmm. say is the main takeaway with how we can discern what news out there is fake versus legit? Do you find people our age are open to learning more on this topic? Well, that's the thing. And that's why disinformation and what we so often refer to as fake news is such a difficult topic, you know. And what we have to be really aware of is that this is not, if we want to get anywhere with this, you know, if we want to have society more able to figure out what's real and what's not real online, we really have to stop talking about it in terms of one person being right and another person being wrong and one person lecturing another. Um, people 
don't like being told that they're wrong. You oh, know, once definitely. you've espoused a fake, it's really hard to disprove it with a fact. You know, we're biologically programmed to believe that what we're doing and what we believe is right and good, right? But we're also, the good part of this is that we're also programmed in another way. And that is that no one likes being cheated. No one likes being hoodwinked. You know, no one likes being taken for a ride. So that's really how to approach it. You know, it's very much about making people more aware, giving them the tools, giving them the tools so that they can check it themselves, um, and not just the tools, but the awareness and the willingness to use those tools. Um, and we found that the kids certainly um, really care about that. You know, they line up these days when we come into a classroom virtually by video conferencing, they line up and they talk into the, you know, into the screen to the journalist who's visiting them and they say, you know, is it true that I'm going to have a microchip implanted in my arm when I get vaccinated? Oh my is it true that wearing a mask is... Um, um, is actually making me more susceptible to, you know, getting sick. And um, what do I do when my aunt asks me to share this chain letter that, you know, and, and, and pressures me? And so interestingly, um, the the pandemic, you know, this, I'm never going to say there's something good about the pandemic, but the pandemic has made this so relevant and where people might have shrugged and thought, I don't really care. Um, and I am just going to believe what my friends say about the world. And, you know, I don't care about politics. I'm not going to get into it. The pandemic has really made this relevant to everybody. Everybody cares. Everybody wants to know what's right and what isn't. Right. And I think during the pandemic, it's like all we have are our phones and our computers and we're sitting at home getting all this information and there comes a time, you know, and, and like you said, it's empowering to be able to make those decisions yourself. So being able to see all this stuff, we had we had the time to, to do the research and figure out what it was that, you know, we really do believe. And I think that that's being able to empower people in that way is so important. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, that's it. I mean, and, and empowering them, that is the most important thing. You know, we work with a very simple checklist. We actually get it from the International Federation of Librarians Associations. If you can get your mouth and head around that title um, um and but that's incredibly easy to start checking things you know it's uh it, it's really just a matter of first of all checking in with your own common sense you know is this real can this be real am i believing it because it's confirming my own biases um am i believing it because i want to believe it or in times of you know, crisis like this pandemic, um, am I believing it because I need to believe it? I need this to be true, you know, because either because it shows me a simple solution to a complicated problem or because it actually seemingly helps to make sense of it an ever more complicated reality, right? So and this is actually an approach that scientists use um, who work on conspiracy theories and debunking and, you know, replacing false narratives with another narrative and the complexity of that. Once people are aware that they have these internal bias triggers inside themselves, they are better able to resist them. Mm. A lot of it is actually about raising the awareness. So kids are also getting their information from platforms many adults obviously have zero knowledge about, whether it's Snapchat, Twitch, TikTok. So how do we keep up with the ever-changing platforms? I think that's a huge question a lot of people have. Yeah, and it's a great question um, because the thing is, um, disinformation is circulating in all sorts of strange and new places. You know, when we ask the kids where they're finding posts that they worry about, um, you know, disinformation, chain letters, conspiracy theories, you know, they tell us that their sources of information are not traditional media. 
No. Mm-hmm. And they're not news sites, online news sites. They're not even Twitter or Facebook. And they're on TikTok. They're on Twitch. They're deeply into what Mark Zuckerberg calls the digital living room. They're in these private spaces where they're consuming stuff that is invisible to the, the eye of content moderators or parents, let's say. Um, but, you know, it's not really about, I don't think that we can ever really catch up when we're talking about young people. We can't really catch up with where they are. Um, We've seen a really interesting pattern recently of the in the use of apps by kids and their teachers. So as the teachers get more wise to platforms and as they start going more onto Instagram and YouTube and even TikTok to inform themselves, the kids migrate away. So there's, we've seen a big boost in like the use of TikTok and Twitch and Discord. Um, and the interesting thing to know about that is that, first of all, there's two things. First of all, the kids are alone. They're, they're alone out there. There's mm. no one, there's no content moderator who's going to come to their aid and just delete the stuff for them, right? Um, and the teachers are not going to be able to follow them. They'll always find a nook on the internet where they can be among themselves, right? Totally. And that means that they have to be given um, their own tools. They have to navigate this this uh, this area by themselves. Um, and the other part of it is that they actually, thankfully, are enormously curious to learn about it. It's crazy because, and I don't know the answer to this, um, so I apologize if this is more common knowledge, but I bet a lot of people out there don't know as well, but do social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube have fact-checking systems in place? You'd think that they they would have to, to a certain point. Yes. In fact, there's a whole, I mean, you could almost call it an industry. You know, there's um, a few years ago, this was kind of seen as the, you know, the potential salvation, the panacea to disinfo. Um, and there are incredibly intelligent and important um, uh, pieces of work being done by fact-checking centers around the world. Um, you know, in the US, I think um, there was, you know, Snopes was one of the first ones, PolitiFact. Um, but in, the, in, in, uh, in Africa, there's something really amazing called Africa Check that does very interesting work. Um, but the thing is, it's not going to solve the problem mm. you know um a few years ago we were having big elections here you know in the european union there were big european parliamentary um elections and there were big headlines saying that you know facebook was opening war rooms full of oh, fact no. checkers that were going to eradicate the disinfo you know but guess what you know it's not that easy you know mm-hmm. and we also have to be careful about censorship of course, of course as we know so you know this kind of the circulating of misleading manipulative um and polarizing content is very sophisticated I'm not even talking about, you know, higher tech. I'm not talking about deep fakes. I'm talking about very simple, the very simple act of splicing fact and fiction. A little bit of fact, a little bit of fiction, and actually very selective use of facts. And when you think about the digital living room that we we're just talking about, you know, the, the encrypted places online, the visual places, it's just very difficult for um, fact checkers to penetrate. I was talking um, recently to a fact checker in Croatia, um, on the, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean region of Europe. And she said that getting into WhatsApp and trying to penetrate the kind of viral groups um, within uh, WhatsApp is like putting a message into a bottle and then throwing the bottle out to sea and just hoping oh it land in a good place. Wow. Um, so, you know, we just cannot see that um, we're going to be able to delete, unfortunately, our way out of this problem. And I think what you're saying then, no matter how much these, these sites put censorship up, it's still a bigger problem that needs to be attacked from a few different angles, correct? 
That's right. Yes. I mean, you know, um, I know it may be controversial to say this to people in California, you know, in the home of Silicon Valley and where so much fascinating <laughs> work is it. being done to develop powerful <laughs> yeah. tech and AI, but AI moderating mechanisms and, you know, sophisticated web crawlers, whatever you want to call it, they're not going to solve this. Mm-hmm. Not when the AI that's around, you know, around the platforms is actually stacked to prioritize polarizing content. You know, we say that, you know, and there's an increasing body of, you know, organizations and uh, and institutions that are looking into this, that information really needs to be tackled from the demand perspective and the um, supply perspective. That's to say, demand, that's you and me. That's you and me clicking Mm -hmm. on and sharing misleading content. Supply, that's the drivers of disinformation. That is the uh, platforms that prioritize outrageous content. You know, we call it, sometimes you hear this being called the attention economy or the outrage industry. This is where our behavior online gets measured. You know, the data of our engagement, of our, you know, the, the engagement, you know, on on uh, on, uh, on these platforms get measured, triggered, and monetized. Um, and, you know, there are important tools at the disposal of countries such as the US and places like Europe Um we don't we mustn't actually get into the trap of trying to censor content um we have to follow the money that's what we have to do we have to go for the business model we have to stem the financial incentives that result in these algorithms that prioritize polarizing content and the algorithms can be changed right now there's not yet um that much of an incentive to for them to be changed and in fact there is still every incentive to keep them as they are hmm interesting um I mean, it's crazy, too, because we live in a world right now where basically anyone can put on their journalist hat, right? And I say that in quotes, but they can present themselves as an expert. Um, An example would be a YouTuber has 20 million subscribers can post their self-made documentaries or conspiracy theory videos. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on that, because that's another thing I think that, like, we can't really censor that, right? No, we can't. And in a way, it's, you know, in a way, it's wonderful. You know, there are many fabulous things about citizen journalism, you know, where would there are many parts of the world where that is actually incredibly important. Um, what we actually all have to do, we do all have to start thinking like journalists. You know, there's a um, the head of the, the education department at the OECD, Andreas Schleicher, recently wrote something really interesting. And he said that we have to rethink radically the concept of learning. It used to be that when we're learning, we were receiving wisdom from somebody older and more experienced than us, right? And they Mm -hmm. were handing a truth down to us. And he said, 21st century concept of learning has got to be radically different. And it needs to be like this. It needs to be that learning is then characterized as the following. The, what did he call it? He called it the triangulating of information. So the gathering of information from different places, the assessing of that value, and then the building of knowledge from that. And that really, as you know, is the business of journalism. Mm. So he's really saying that we all have to learn how to be journalists, which I just can't wait for the day when that is the case. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure this is also a loaded question, but in your opinion, like who are people that are making up this the fake news? Is it just like at times a bad game of telephone or people purposely trying to get a rise out of people or both or or something I'm missing? What would you say? It's hard to tell where this stuff is coming from, where it originates. It's very difficult. There's some very interesting initiatives that measure this. Um, we at Lie Detectors don't measure it. Um, there's some folks looking into cyber diplomacy at, at a place that's called the EU Institute for Security Studies, who were recently warning about this kind of approach, trying to track down the individual actor. 
actors. And they said individual actors are incredibly hard to track because they could be acting via via so many proxies that it's almost impossible to untangle um, this web. Um, but I do also know that the people who, you know, share disinfo and 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 make it go viral are people like you and me. Um, you know, a lot of the virality is from people like us um, who are just posting something without thinking very much, without, you know, um, engaging the critical thinking muscle before sharing. Um, and we have to learn to resist that share button. One of the things that we keep saying is that how come we have the, you know, the little emoticons under every, you know, in every, on every online app, you know, we can, you can, we can react with liking or hearting or fear or anger or outrage or whatever, right? Why don't we have a little emoticon that says, think, the little hands on the chin that says, wait a second, why don't we introduce a little bit of friction into the system to make people actually, to, to encourage people to stop and think? Totally. And you know, it's it's so interesting you say that because I think that we've all been victim to this. Like I, the way virality is right now, you know, you see something, you repost it. And this happened to me last year and I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I remember there's this trend going around that was the women supporting women challenge. The challenge accepted, you like nominated friends. It was supposed to be this like female empowerment thing. And then you posted a picture, a black and white picture of yourself. And then all of a sudden, like 24 hours later after, you know, you're nominating friends. And I think there was something like 8.5 million posts that were made worldwide. Celebrities got in on it. And then all of a sudden it, it turns out it was actually, um, it was actually about like the femicide in Turkey and the viral challenge we were doing was taking away from honoring these women. So it was this like, but I remember that happening and being so like, oh my gosh, Chelsea, like, why didn't you do the research? Like you just, you just hopped on this train. And I think that that's just to speak on sort of virality and how it does. It picks up within 24 hours, 8.5 million posts when really it was, you know, it was something else that we, none of us had any idea about. Yeah. I mean, look, honestly, I think that it happens to everybody. I think it would be very hard pressed to find ever anyone who says they've never fallen for something like that, you know, and it's difficult, you know, and what we have to do is we have to somehow learn to, you know, resist the urge to immediately press share because it's so easy. It's made so easy for us. We're, you know, we're encouraged to do it as well, you know, and when previously, you know, maybe you remember, I certainly do um, remember the days when I used to walk down to the news agents to buy a newspaper, you know, and mm-hmm. there'd be, you know, a broadsheet that I'd decide to read for news or something, but there was always a tabloid, you know, there was always something there that was telling me about alien landings um, or something. And I might one day have decided to, you know, to buy one of those just to entertain myself. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's nothing wrong with this stuff existing while well, there is probably, but you're not going to, you're not going to eradicate it. These kind of the, the alien landing story is always going to be there. It's whether we have the eye to be able to say, okay, this is a trustworthy news source. And this is, this is a tabloid thing that's made for, you know, that's clickbait um, that's, that's designed to make us engage. Um, and I am going to look at it, but I'm actually not going to take it seriously. Right. That's 1000%. And I think that it seems like another angle and and a powerful tool in combating disinformation is getting people to really trust legitimate news sources and journalists again, because I feel like I don't know what's happened. And maybe you can speak on that a little bit. Maybe it is since the rise of social media. What would you say journalists need to do to get the trust back from the population? 
That's such a good question. And that's actually the question that I asked myself when I founded Lie Detectors, because the thing is, we're not blameless in this. Um, you know, there has been an enormous crisis of journalism and then, and the resulting crisis in the trust in journalism. You know, there's, there's a problem in the business model, um, um, which many, which means that a lot of good journalism has been shut down. Um, and a lot of good papers, a good, a lot of good media outlets have been shut down. Um, there's also the issue that, um, you know, journalism failed to spot the financial crisis and that gave that that really hit the credibility of journalism it has to be said worldwide um you know even though it's a long long time ago it hasn't really recovered from then um also journalists have to be really careful not to always insist that they are the pillar of truth you know we all get it wrong and this is something mm -hmm. that we um and the journalists who volunteer with us um always do when we speak to kids is we have to show that journalism is made by human beings. We can't assume that people know how journalism works. You know, it used to be that every town had its local paper, but that's not the case anymore. You know, journalists are more and more kind of like a weird, rarefied, unknown, and kind of suspect um, bunch of people. Um, what we have to do is we have to show that, you know, we are human beings. We're, we're, we're trying to achieve these incredible high standards of objectivity, of balance, of pure reporting in a world that is ever more complex and where the constraints that we face are really high. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. You know, we might be working with, you know, um, cub reporters because they're cheaper than the experienced reporters maybe in some instances and what we always encourage our journalists to say is actually come out in front of a class of children and a teacher and say you know what I have these incredibly high standards but I have failed and let me show you how I have failed and then they come up with an example of where their journalism somehow didn't work out hmm. and it's actually by showing their own fallibility that we're really trying to build up the trust because what the very important thing is is to show that, you know, there is um, uh, purposeful disinformation, you know, manipulative content that's being put out there. And then on the other side, there is journalism that doesn't always get it right, you know, but that is actually working with a bona fide goal of informing citizens. And that even though it is not a perfect product, it is still something different um, from the the kind of polarized and disinformative, sorry, disinforming and manipulative um, content that we see in other places. I think that's great that you're teaching kids that because that's true. Like we're humans. There's going to be human error, especially in a 24 hour news um, newsroom like that's just going to happen. But what do you, do you think we live in a society where people can be forgiving of mistakes? Because I think that that's a problem right now. You know, there's like cancel culture. There's things. So if journalists come out and say like, oh, I made a mistake here, like is that it's almost like I think they're afraid to at times or they don't know how to handle it when there is a mistake made. Yes, it's true. And it's, you know, this is, we, we actually spend a lot of time training our journalists on, on, uh, on how to do this. And, uh, um, and often they say that the kids come up to them and say, wow, I had no idea. So we, we work with questionnaires and we, um, they're all GDPR compliant, of course, you know, they're data privacy compliant. They're handwritten questionnaires that we get from the kids afterwards. And we ask them, what is it that surprised you most about our visit? And very often they will say, I had no idea that being a journalist was so complicated. Mm. Um, you know, so it's actually that transparency and that kind of, you know, show of actual vulnerability that makes us more trustworthy. We cannot insist um, on always being right because, you know, it's just, you know, it's just building glass houses around us um, that will be smashed, you know, at the very first mistake that we make. Just to sort of sum things up. So let's say you have a piece of information that you need to figure out is real or fake, 
You're delivering us so many good nuggets. So I want to know, what are the steps you recommend taking to getting to the bottom of it? Like, where would you start? You know, the easy answer is, you know, read beyond the headline. You read beyond, you don't just read a headline. Um, uh, you Well, first of all, you have to ask yourself, you know, is this actually a text-based uh, a piece of news or is it a photo-based piece of news or is it a video? You know, look beyond the headline, look at the date, look at the choice of words, look at the source, look up the source, read about the journalist, read about the news outlet. We're obviously talking about something that's important, right? Because you're only actually going to go to that trouble if it's important. But first of all, I guess, and the most basic and day-to-day thing that we can all be doing is... First of all, check in with yourself. What are the assumptions that you're making? Think about that a little bit. Think about like why you might be reacting to a particular piece of news in a particular way. And that will probably help you. It'll also help you think whether you need to now go and check the source. And playing devil's advocate here, how do we know, how do we and the students know you are teaching us the truth if you're being paid by someone to tell us? And obviously, you having a journalism background. Is, do the kids give you, give you a hard time for that at all? Such a good question. Teaching us the truth. <laughs> you know, we go into classrooms where not everybody loves journalists. And we do get questions like this, um, particularly from teachers, you know. Um, but at the same time, we also get questions from teachers that ask us, can you give us a list of dependable news sources, please? You know, if, if it's difficult to tell real from unreal, um, can you please just tell us where to go to get find dependable news? And it is one of our cardinal rules never to recommend, you know, because because even the best of papers, the best of news yeah. sources can, can make mistakes, hmm. you know? Um, what we are recommending is ways of checking a source, ways of checking a story, way of, ways of checking out whether something is you know, exaggerated or plain made up or whether it's trying to skew you in one direction or whether it's actually very um, plain fact. Um, And the really important thing, and I think the reason why we get into all sorts of classrooms, you know, we get into classrooms where people, you know, people think in all different ways. You know, every classroom is a little tiny universe unto itself. You never know what you're going to get, right? We never will tell children what to think we're going to tell them that it's worth thinking themselves, you know, Mm. that it's messy, that it can be fun and that it's definitely worth it. Oh, Juliana, I love what you're doing. I just want to know, what are your closing remarks to people listening on how to successfully navigate this new world of information? What what do you want to leave them with? I think it's one word and it is from a very clever man called Ian Volbracht, who did a TED talk some time ago, um, who thinks about tech a lot. And he said something extremely simple. He said, breathe. Mm. Allow the content to wash over system one and engage system two. Allow the content that might be trying to engage your, you know, your, your, uh, your crocodile brain or whatever it's called, you know, let it wash over that and then engage your rational brain Mm. and that'll take you a lot further. So yeah, I really like that. Breathe. I love that. Take that minute. Don't be so reactive and don't believe everything you read and feel empowered to really do the research. I think those are such important takeaways from today's conversation. And and also I want to know when you're going to come to the U.S. and teach the kids here because I feel like we need something (laughs) like this in the U.S., well, we can't wait. We have plans to pilot the project in the U.S. next year. Do and you? Hopefully, we'll you know be able to tell you about it um, uh, closer to that time. Oh, amazing! <laughs> well, I can't wait. Hopefully, when you're here, I can give you a hug. We can we can do an interview in person. 
I look forward to that. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Obviously, such an important topic. You dropped so many wisdom nuggets, so I really appreciate having you. Thank you. It was really lovely talking to you, Chelsea. Thanks a lot. I'd like to thank our guest, Juliana von Reppert Bismarck, for joining me on Innovation on the Edge with Microsoft Edge. We'll be back next week with another episode exploring more internet innovations, pop culture trends, and how we can create a better future together. 